Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to Romans chapter 5. We've been uh, uh, going through the book of Romans verse by verse or really chapter by chapter. And um, uh, I've been gone for the last couple of weeks, so we got through the end of uh, chapter five, uh, chapter 4. So we want to pick up with chapter 5 tonight. Uh, I'll remind you as you're turning in your Bibles to that opening, uh, some of the things that we've seen up to this point. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul specifies and enumerates and identifies the, the moral depravity of man, uh, the fact that he is uh, under the bondage of sin and death, spiritual death. Uh, the end of chapter 3, he tells us that Jesus is the answer. Jesus was the propitiation of the mercy seat through the shedding of his blood. Chapter 4, he talks about justification. And the word justification or justified means to be declared righteous. Doesn't mean to be earned, to, it doesn't mean to earn it. It means to be declared righteous. Now, chapter 5, the first 11 verses of chapter 5, Paul's going to talk about the benefits of justification, what justification or having been declared righteous brings to us. Verse 1, therefore being justified, I'm reading from the King James, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First thing I want to encourage you to do is make a note in your Bible. This word is not, is incorrectly translated. It's not being justified. It's having been justified. Now, here's the difference. And you're going to find this all throughout the fifth chapter. The fifth chapter of Romans is one of the most important books in the Bible, most important chapters in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. It's got information that Paul doesn't share with us uh, uh, anywhere else, at least not to this degree, not to this depth. And, uh, and if, you, if you can get a hold of the fifth chapter of Romans, then many of the other things of God will, will just unfold to you. So where he says, having been justified, again, justified means having been declared righteous. If it's being justified, if it's translated being justified, then that's talking about a state of being. But having been looks back to something that's already been declared, something that's already been done. Now, here's the difference between those two. If he's talking about being justified by faith, he's talking about a state of being righteous, which would be sanctification. But if he's talking about a declaration that's already been made once and for all, done deal, through the, the Hebrew uh, or through the Greek language, having been justified, then he's talking about what Jesus did for us. Everything about the fifth chapter of, Rome, uh, of Romans is talking about what Jesus has done for us. Everything about it is through the act or action of Jesus that declared us righteous. You'll see how that uh, becomes more important as we get further into the chapter. So the first thing that he says is the benefit of justification, having been justified. He says, having been justified, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Now, how does justification come? One and only one way, and that's by faith in Jesus. Faith in what Jesus has done. Not works, not something that you did, not cleaning yourself up, not getting yourself in position to come to God, just simply accepting by faith what Jesus has done, and that brings peace with God. That means the war is over. Once and for all, forever. Now, it's not a war like war that we think of war between countries. It's a war between a king and his rebellious people. That war is over. Now, the reason the war is over is because the king has been satisfied. God has been satisfied once and for all. So having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Don't confuse that with the peace of God. The peace of God is subjective. It depends on you doing certain things. Philippians chapter 4 says the peace of God will rule and reign in your life if you think on the right things. This is not the peace of God. This is peace with God. Now, because the war is over, 
it says that there's another benefit that comes to us in verse 2. By whom, by Jesus also, meaning his death, his sacrifice, by whom also we have access. Notice the words by faith in verse 2. They shouldn't be there. Because it's not another, a separate action of faith that brings you access. It's the one action of faith that was spoken of in verse 1, accepting what Jesus did on your behalf. So we'll read it without by faith in in verse 2. By whom? By Jesus also we have access into this grace. That grace can be defined in different ways. In this place, in this uh, one instance, I think it's helpful to define it as favor. Because he's talking about the benefit of having been declared righteous. See, the first three chapters of Romans, we went into great detail, or Paul went into great detail by the Holy Ghost, to declare that we had been judged as unrighteous and without hope. But through the one single act of Jesus, we've been declared righteous, and all we have to do is accept what he did on our behalf and take hold. And what does that do? It brings immediate peace with God. Secondly, it says, by faith, or by uh, whom? By Jesus Because of his sacrifice, we also have access into his favor. Think of it like this. America started off with a revolution against England. But now England is its greatest ally. God's your greatest ally. You used to be enemies. But now God's your greatest ally. And that will never change. It's not dependent on administrations or politics or anything else. God is always your greatest ally. And that's what it's talking about here. It's talking about access by grace or into this grace wherein we stand. Notice he's talking about a standing. He's talking about a continual favor. He's not talking about a one-time favor that came to us because Jesus died. Now he's talking about a standing. He's talking about a position, a position of favor with God that never changes and can't ever end. By whom also we have access by uh, access into this grace wherein we stand. Here's the third benefit, he says, of having been declared righteous. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, this seems to re- re- refer to uh, some things that Paul wrote to the Colossians where he talks about the glory of God being made manifest us in us and when Jesus comes back. He seems to be referring to a future point in time when Jesus comes back and we receive our our glorified bodies. He's not talking about something here on the earth in this verse because he starts talking about what happens on the earth in the next verse. And he differentiates between the two. Verse 3, and not only so, here's another benefit. We don't just rejoice in the hope of of, uh, receiving our glorified bodies. Not only so, but we also glory in tribulations. The word tribulation means test, trial, or affliction. It means pressure. Now, folks, Paul said by the Holy Ghost that the fact that we've been declared righteous gives us reason, cause, and ability to take glory in the trouble that we find ourselves in in the earth. Well, Pastor Mike, I don't want to glory in those things. Well, I don't feel like glorying in them either. But Paul talks about a progression of spiritual development. He says we glory also in tribulations knowing Knowing, knowing, a lot of Christians don't know this, and so they don't glory in their situations. They don't glory in God. They don't put the word of God to work in their situations. Knowing that tribulation works, patience. And patience, experience. And experience, hope. Now, what he says is tribulation, trouble, the pressures we find ourselves in this world, 
if we know how things work and we're supposed to, he says it'll develop patience or that word patience is the word constancy. 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 You know, Christians need to be steady. When the world comes apart all around us, we need to be steady knowing who, we, who our trust is in. Knowing what God's word says will take place. Well, what brings that about? Not study of the word. Trouble. Pressure. It's in the middle of pressure that you learn to be constant. And if you let that constancy work in you, then it'll develop experience. Now, this is approval. This word experience has to do with approval. In other words, approving that which you know to be true by seeing it come to pass. Uh, one, uh, one uh, minister, a friend of mine said this many years ago, and I've always remembered it. He said, I want to learn my, I want to learn faith from somebody with scars. Any Bible school student could come out and teach the doctrine or the theory of faith. But you learn it from somebody that's got experience. That's a whole different matter. Well, how do you gain that experience? By going through trouble. If any of you have ever, ever listened to Brother Hagin much, all he did was tell stories. What's he telling stories about? Experiences. Where he put the word of God to work and those experiences, those stories still carry me through today. Well, if you run every time trouble raises its head, you don't wind up with any constancy or experience. And so many times people are wanting to run from the trouble. Folks, trouble is the greatest proving ground there is. God's word was designed for trouble. It was not designed for the classroom. It was designed for application in life. So he says, if we know the tribulation pressure from the earth all around us works patience, constancy, and patience experience proving things to be true and experience hope. This word hope is expectancy. Now, notice verse 5, he says, and hope, that expectancy, makes not ashamed. In other words, he said, if you have the right kind of hope built on the right things, and the hope he's talking about is the, is the, uh, the result of patience, experience, that brings hope. That kind of hope will never be ashamed. That kind of hope develops trust in God. That kind of hope knows that God will never let you down. That's what that means. And hope never makes a shame. Now, here's the reason why we know that hope will never let us down. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart. See, no matter what you're believing for or how far-fetched it may seem to your natural mind or your circumstances, how much your, your circumstances may contradict it, you've got something on the inside of you that tells you that what you can't see is real. And that something on the inside of you is the presence of God by his love. Every time the devil tells you it's not going to work, all you got to do is look on the inside and say, well, wait a minute, i got the love of God on the inside of me. I didn't give that to myself. God gave that to me. And God said, this is how it works. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. He talks about two things. He talks about the presence of God and the love of God on the inside. Those are things that we need to magnify within us, folks. The more you magnify the love of God, the more you'll walk in the love of God. The more you magnify the Holy Ghost or the presence of God in you, the more you'll be aware of the fact that he never leaves you nor forsakes you. Then he starts talking about some, uh, some attributes or characteristics of the love of God. Verse 6, for when we were yet without strength, this word strengthless means inability, 
moral depravity, moral inability to come to God. Here's what the love of God did. When we had no ability to come to him in due time, in the appropriate time, literally, Christ died for the ungodly. Why were we ungodly? Because we were without strength. We were without any moral capability to come to God. That's the definition of ungodly, folks. Separated from God. Not only were we separated, we were strengthless. We were without strength to be able to change our situation. Then he talks about natural love or human love. Verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. You might find some rare situations where somebody cares enough about somebody else here on the earth because of their moral character or whatever the case is, maybe it's their loved one or whatever, that someone would be willing to die for somebody else. But those situations are few and far between. But look at what the love of God does. But God commended. The word commended means exhibited. God commended or exhibited or showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, notice the progression, first we were strengthless, then we were sinners. It's not that we changed. We were sinners all along. But he talks about the progression of God's love, the progression, the hurdles that God's love had to jump to be shown to us. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, verse 9, much more. There are four much mores in, ver- in chapter 5. Four much mores. Two of them have to do with future things. Two of them have to do with what belongs to us now. Much more because of the love of God, because he died for us while we were sinners. Much more being now justified, declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Notice what the Holy Ghost, one of the first things the Holy Ghost wants to tell you about here's what God's love will do for you. It'll save you from ever experiencing any measure of God's wrath whatsoever. Now, I don't want to get off topic. I don't have enough time to cover what I need to do, and so I don't want to waste any time on a rabbit trail. But let me ask you a question. How in the world could anybody, thinking rightly, claim that God would put sickness on his children? First of all, we know that sickness is not in God's hand, is not in his power. But most of the church world does not know that. And so most of the church world's idea is that God does things to his children and they call it love. God gives his children sickness. God brings sickness or disease upon his children because he's trying to teach them something. Well, we know better than that, folks. We don't do that to our own kids. If you treated your kids like the church thinks that, the, that God treats his, you'd be put in jail for child abuse. But somehow when you put some kind of spiritual connotation on it, it's supposed to make sense. It doesn't make sense. The only reason that God would ever bring something evil upon his children is if he was mad at them. Now, I don't know about you, but I've spanked my children in anger. I know, it's, I, know I shouldn't have. I always promised that I wouldn't do it. But there, was, there have been a couple of times where I let my anger get the best of me and I spanked them out of anger. I knew I did the wrong thing. And I've never had anything in my parental experience make me feel worse about myself than that. Because as parents, we know not to do that. We know better than that. How in the world then can the church world, with any kind of logical, good sense, reasoning, come up with the idea that God does things to his children without assuming or without concluding that he's mad at them? 
Yet the Bible says very simply and very clearly, much more since Jesus died for us while we were sinners, much more since we're justified by his blood, we're saved. The word saved here means, it's the word sozo, it means a number of things, but use the word deliver as a, as a substitute. Much more shall we be delivered from wrath. Folks, the wrath of God is coming upon the earth, but not on you. The wrath of God will come on those that reject Jesus, but it'll never come on you. And, it, and that helps me because a lot of times the devils are on my shoulder saying, well, you did something wrong. And the idea is you messed up and so these bad things happened. Well, unless God is mad at me when the Bible says that he can't be, that can't ever be the case. Are you out there? That's what the benefit of knowing that you've been delivered. Much more, you've been delivered from wrath. From the wrath of God. But it also has a future connotation talking about the tribulation. God has not appointed us to wrath. Paul says several times. Numerous times in his letters to the church. God's not set us aside for wrath. You don't ever have to worry about God being against you. For any reason whatsoever. Yeah, but what if we miss it, Pastor Mike? Then fix it. Sometimes we miss it and get out in the the devil's territory. But you can get back just as quick as you got away. That's your choice. That's something for you to fix. But God's not mad at you when you're walking with him or when you're walking away from him. God never changes. You and I may change based on our behavior, based on our choices and our decisions, but God never changes. Much more than being justified, having been justified literally, by his blood we shall be saved or delivered from wrath through him. For if, the word if is the word since. One of the four tenses of the Greek word if, it means since. For since, when we were enemies, now here's the progression. First, we were strengthless. That made us ungodly. Then we were sinners. Now we're enemies. The word enemy means hater. Before you made Jesus Lord of your life, whether you intended to hate God or not, you were a hater of God. That's what it means to be ruled and dominated by death, spiritual death. For since, when we were enemies... We were reconciled. The word reconciled means to exchange mutually. In other words, it's talking about Jesus' work, Jesus' sacrifice, made a clean break, made a clean exchange with us. Our unrighteousness was exchanged for his righteousness. Our spiritual death was exchanged for his spiritual life. Not half and half, not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. A little bit of life and a little bit of death. It was an ex- a mutual exchange. You can't have death and have life at the same time. It's one or the other. So when we made Jesus the Lord of our life, when having been justified, declared righteous by his blood, through faith, there was a mutual exchange. Since when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, here's the second much more, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved, delivered by his life. Now, Paul's got a problem here in, in chapter 5 in, in this context, and that is he's trying to bear down and, and isolate a part of the work of Jesus. But since Jesus' work is all-inclusive, it's kind of hard to do that. And if you'll notice, chapter 5 does not, never speaks of in Christ because the purpose of chapter 5 is not to tell you who you are in Christ, although he does make uh, uh, cursory mention of the things that belong to us in our, as, uh, as a part of our standing with God. He's trying to show us 
who we have been, de- uh, the fact that we've been declared righteous by one and only one work, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus. Remember, he's still trying to overcome the idea of not only the law of Moses and the keeping of the law of Moses, but he's trying to overcome the idea that we all have that, that our, our standing before God depends on what we do in some way or another. So he says, being reconciled, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved, literally delivered by his life. And not only so, not only so, not only are we delivered from wrath, the wrath to come, not only the wrath now and wrath in the future, not only are we reconciled to Jesus and delivered by his life, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about what he's talking about. Put these things in context. I know we're separating them for reference sake. But remember, he's been writing in the first three chapters of the book about how God was our judge. And we didn't stand a chance. Man had no chance, had no standing, had no place with God whatsoever. Now, because of the one work of Jesus that declared you righteous, now you can joy in that same God that was your judge because now he's your friend. Now his favor is poured upon you. Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, by Jesus, we have now received the atonement. This word atonement means exchange. It's a real poor translation here. They really shouldn't have used the word atonement. Atonement is not a New Testament word. Atonement, as it's used in the Old Testament, means a covering over of sins. Jesus never covered over anybody's sins. He took it away. He removed it. So here where it's talking about the atonement, it's talking about the same exchange that was used that the word uh, reconciled, that was translated reconciled earlier in these verses. Now in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul changes. And he, he begins talking about the doctrine of the two men. God's two men. Um, there's some things I don't understand about the book of Romans. First of all, I'm glad that we've got it. Certainly, I mean, that, uh, that kind of goes without saying, I guess. But I'm really pleased that we have it because Paul talks about the doctrine of God's two men more in, uh, in Romans than he does anywhere else. He mentions it briefly, just kind of hits at it in 1 Corinthians 15. He speaks a little bit of the principle in Hebrews chapter 7. But it's, but it's very, very minor. It's just real quick. Now, the question I've got is since God's doctrine of two men is so important, is so critical to the understanding of who we are in Christ, and what he's done for us, why didn't it ever let her? I'm left to conclude, and I, I say conclude, but I, it may not be a good word. I, I, I surmise. Maybe that'd be a better way to say it. I wonder if it's because Paul hadn't been to Rome. Maybe he's preached this in other churches where he's gone and the other, the other churches that he's established. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he starts off the chapter saying, you know what I preached there, and then he makes mention of it briefly about Adam and Jesus being God's two men. So maybe this was something that was such a staple of his preaching in the churches and the cities that he went to that he felt necessary to go into detail in his letter to the Romans where he didn't with anybody else. If that's not the answer, I don't know what it would be. That's the only thing that I can think of that makes sense that seems to fit because it is so central to the understanding of what Jesus has done for us and who we are in Christ. So he begins in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man 
sin entered into the world. Now, the wherefore has to do with all the judgment that was due us because of our condition. Now he's going to tell us, go back to the history, go back to the beginning. Here's how things began. Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, by one man, sin entered into the world. And death, spiritual death, not physical death, but spiritual death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sin. Notice King James says have sin. Strike through that word have. All men have not sinned because Adam sinned. What he's saying is, don't get me wrong, everybody has sinned since then. But what he's saying is everybody was counted as guilty of the same sin that Adam was counted guilty of. Now, how is that possible? Folks, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit, but hopefully this will make a little bit more sense if we do. God's doctrine of two men is simply this. All of mankind was in Adam. Let me give you an example of this. In, uh, um, in Hebrews chapter 7, about verse 9, it talks about uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, somewhere around there. Um, throughout those verses, it talks about how Adam, uh, I'm sorry, um, What's his name? Abraham. Abraham met Melchizedek after coming back from the slaughter of the five kings where he brought back Lot and all the stuff and and, uh, the goods from Sodom uh, and and so forth. Adam comes or Abraham comes back and meets Melchizedek and pays tithes. Paul, who I believe was the author of the book of Hebrews, by the Holy Ghost, makes the point that Levi, the tribe of the priesthood, paid tithes in Abraham. Now, Levi was Abraham's great-grandson. At the time that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi certainly wasn't born. Levi's father wasn't born. Levi's great-grandfather uh, hadn't even been born. But it says that because of Abraham's choice, his action to pay tithes to Melchizedek, one who was greater than himself, one who was the priest of God and so forth. You remember some of the uh, statements that it says about Abraham or says about Melchizedek without father and mother and without natural descent and so forth. Probably was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, but we can't be sure. It says that Levi, in other words, the Levites, the whole tribe of Levi paid tithes in Abraham. Now, somebody explained to me how Abraham's action covered his great-grandson's. That's impossible. Wouldn't it be great if I could get saved for my kids? Wouldn't it be great if I could get saved for my grandkids or my great-grandkids? That's a more important thing than paying tithes, isn't it? Well, why can't we do that? Because unless someone is the beginning of something, unless someone stands in a place as a new creature in some measure, then everybody stands alone as far as their own actions are concerned. But both Adam and Jesus were brand new creatures. Adam was a new creation, unlike anything else that he had ever that God had ever made. Remember what the angel said in uh, was it Psalm eight? What is man that thou art mindful of him? The angels stand back and say, "You're going to make what? You're going to you're going to create man in your own image? What is man? We've never heard of that before. You've come up with a plan and you've called it man." We know that we're created, the angels say. But what is this thing that you're going to make even higher than us? 
more like yourself than us. What is man that thou, hast, uh, that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that you visited him? What is man that you've given him dominion over all the works of your hand? They're dumbfounded. Adam is that man that God creates. And as a result, as a new creature in Christ, uh, a new creature, excuse me, as a new creature created by God in the Garden of Eden, Adam's actions count for everybody. Now, here's what that does not mean. That does not mean when Adam sins, you sinned. That's impossible. It's impossible for you to commit sin before you're born. So it's remember, or, or please get an, have an understanding that when it talks about sin and talking about Adam and talking about Jesus, it's not talking about personal sins. It's not talking about personal actions. Up to this point, sins have been talked about from a personal standpoint. But sin that was credited to you where it says all, all have sinned, literally all sinned. It doesn't mean all committed sin. It means everybody. When death passed upon all men, it means the penalty for Adam's sin passed upon everybody. That's why you're guilty. You're guilty before God before you're saved. Everybody is guilty before God before they're saved. Not because of anything they've done. They're guilty before God before they accept Jesus. Everybody is. For one and only one reason, and that is Adam's sin pronounced guilt upon them. This is very important, folks. You're not guilty before God. When I say you, I'm not talking about you as a Christian. I'm talking about mankind. Mankind is not guilty before God because they've done wrong. That's the whole doctrine of God's two men. Nobody is guilty before God because they've done wrong. Now, everybody's done wrong. And everybody has to answer for their own sin. But that's not what makes them guilty before God. What makes them guilty before God is Adam's sin. And there's only one thing, one and only one thing that can ever be done about Adam's sin. You can, you can do good works all your life. You can do good works throughout the millennium. And that won't pay for Adam's sin. You can give to the poor. That won't pay for Adam's sin. You can feed the hungry. All over the world, you can eradicate poverty if you had enough money, I guess. Except Jesus said you'd always have the poor. You know why people are poor? Not because they don't have money, but because poor people don't know how to handle money. That's why money never is the fix for poor. Money helps. But Jesus said you'll always have the poor. Now, of course, President Obama said that Jesus didn't, you know, was wrong when he said that. But, you know, outside of that, we know what the Bible says. But you could give enough money to make, make a difference in the, every poor person's life on the face of the earth if you had enough money. But that's not going to change Adam's original sin. That's not going to change your guilt before God. That's the whole point that he's making. It wasn't your action that made you guilty. It wasn't your action that made you the enemy of God. It wasn't even your action that created a sinful nature in and upon you. It was one and only one thing, and that was you were pronounced guilty. Because you were in Adam. Adam was the federal head of mankind. And when he sinned, his sin covered everybody. Because he was a new species of being. Wherefore, as by one man sin into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all sinned. In other words, all were pronounced guilty based on his sin or because of his sin. Now notice he's talking about uh, uh, personal sin. Verse, 14, verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. 
What is he talking about? Where he's talking about the law and sin regarding the law, transgression is defined in Scripture as the broken law. Now, here's something. uh, I hope I have enough time to cover this effectively. God did not say to you in the day that you eat thereof, of the tree of the knowledge of fruit, good and evil. He did not say to you and me, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He said that to Adam and only to Adam. So death took hold of you, spiritual death took hold of you without any transgression of God's law on your part. You were born into sin, not because you transgressed God's law or broke God's law. You were born into sin because of the pronouncement of death upon the earth, the pronouncement of guilt upon mankind. And when there is no law, when there is no commandment, there's no law to break. Even though sin was in the world, even though the consequence of Adam's sin was the pronouncement of guilt upon all of mankind, and it was there for 2,500 years between Adam and Moses, there's no broken law. There's no law to break. And the law, of, uh, the law that God gave Adam was no longer in effect. Once he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's no other law that, that man has to keep. And Paul talks about that. He said, for until the law was in the world, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. When does the law come around? 2,500 years after Adam, when Moses came up. Nevertheless, death reigned, spiritual death and the consequence of death. The pronouncement of guilt upon mankind. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. In other words, he says, sin sin and death didn't reign over Adam more than it did over his children. When Adam was the one that committed the transgression and his children did not, they didn't have a law to break. They didn't have a commandment to disobey. But death still reigned. Now, notice the next thing he says. He says about Adam that he is the figure, the end of verse 14, the figure of him that was to come. The figure of him that was to come. The word figure is the word type. Adam is a type of Jesus. What was Jesus? A new species of being. Jesus was a new species of being. Folks, you need to understand something. Nowhere did Jesus identify with you or did you identify with Jesus in his earthly life? Nowhere. Jesus lived on the earth as a righteous man. You can't identify with that. Prior to accepting him as your Lord and Savior, there's no, there's no identification with that whatsoever. There is no redemptive work for us in the four Gospels. Jesus' earthly ministry. None whatsoever. Christianity began with the resurrection. Before that, Jesus was just a guy that everybody said, wow. Now, he shared his authority with his disciples. He revealed the goodness of God. He revealed the character of God. He revealed God's uh, works and his plan and so forth. But none of that had any identification property with you. The only identification property of Jesus was when he died, when he shed his blood on your behalf. That's when there was a mutual exchange that took place. In other words, just like there was no identification for you with Adam in his transgression, there was no identification for you 
with Jesus until he took the act of sacrificing himself and spilling his blood. You didn't do anything, but you were pronounced guilty because of what Adam did. You didn't do anything, but you were declared righteous because of what Jesus did. That's God's doctrine of two men. But he elaborates a little bit further. He says, but as the offense, verse 15, but not as the offense or the sin, so also is the free gift. In other words, the gift is greater than the sin. Jesus' gift, action that brought the gift of redemption to mankind was greater than the act of Adam's transgression, disobedience to God. Not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, Adam, many be dead, much more. Here's the second much or the third much more. Much more, the grace of God and the gift of gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. In other words, he's saying, here's the difference between God's doctrine of two men. The one action covered mankind. But Jesus' action of redemption was so much greater than Adam's action of sin and the consequence thereof. How much greater was it? It was as much greater as God and Jesus are greater or above and beyond Adam. It's as much greater as the creator of the universe is above the creation. That's what he's trying to get across. That's what Paul's trying to get across. He is saying, he's trying to eradicate once and for all the idea that we might not be in the place we want to be with God. He's trying to eradicate and do away with once and for all the idea, the notion that mankind carries because of the, the, the residual properties of spiritual death the natural thinking that maybe god doesn't like us as much as he likes the other guy you hear some people preach and man you just assure they're god's favorite what does that mean does that mean we're redheaded stepchildren what does that mean does that mean we're left out does that mean we're not as favored by god as somebody else is that's what paul's trying to deal with he says because of what jesus one action that one act of sacrifice that one act of shedding his blood covered all of mankind much more than adam's action of disobedience brought the penalty of spiritual death Now, I don't know about you folks, but I'm pretty sure about that spiritual death and penalty part. The other part takes some meditating on to to accept. But that's what he's saying. He's saying it's so far. Jesus' action of redemption is so far above Adam's act of, of disobedience. As far as the heavens are above the earth, as far as God is above man. And not as it was by one Adam that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one. You need to understand something, folks. On the day that Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, that was judgment day. God had a judgment day in the Garden of Eden. And as such, to honor his word, he pronounced judgment upon all of mankind. Judgment meaning guilt. Judgment meaning his sin is your sin. His sin is Adam's sin is mankind's sin. That was a judgment day. Now, it was out of love. Because without man seeing what his condition is, he would never know of his need for a savior. But it's all setting up his original plan for redemption. Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world, remember? 
This is all just playing into God's original plan. And his original plan was for you to have his life within yourself through the acceptance by faith of the act of Jesus shedding of blood. And not as it was by one Adam that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one Adam to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. In other words, he's saying the work of Jesus didn't just make you free and make you, uh, declared you righteous from Adam's sin and the guilt that came as a result of Adam's sin, but it also covers the individual sin, personal sins. Adam's didn't do that. Adam's action didn't cover the individual sin. It just pronounced sin upon all of mankind because Adam was not the federal head of everybody as far as their personal sins and transgressions were concerned. Everybody had the choice to sin or not to sin. Adam didn't control that. But Adam's disobedience to God's first commandment, not to eat of the fruit of the tree, that covered everybody. But Jesus was just the opposite. Jesus covered not only the original sin, Adam's sin, and the guilt that was pronounced upon all of mankind as a result, but also personal sins. For if by one, verse 17, for if by the one man's offense, Adam's offense, if death reigned by that one man, Adam, much more, here's the fourth, much more, much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, folks, here's what Paul is trying to, he's been building a case to this point, And that is very simply this. God's original plan. Here's why there was a judgment day in the Garden of Eden. Because God's original plan was for grace, his favor, his goodness, his kindness, his ability, his willingness to help, his mercy would reign in the place where spiritual death used to have its kingdom. Now, to what degree did spiritual death rule and reign over you before you knew Jesus? How much did spiritual death permeate and influence and affect your life? Maybe we should ask it this way. Is there any area of your life that it did not influence and dominate? Even the smallest area of your life. Anything? It dominated your thought life. It dominated your action. Dominated your finances, dominated your health. Is there any area of life that it did not dominate and influence you? Well, in the same way, much more, God's plan was for the, the, the kingdom of grace or the kingdom of his favor and his mercy and his love and his goodness and his kindness, his deliverance and his healing and provision and everything else that's a part of the, the kingdom of God, that that should reign in every aspect where spiritual death used to hold you in bondage. That means, therefore, for us, if there's an area of our lives that the favor of God and the goodness of God and the power of God is not reigning, it's not his fault. Jesus already did the work. It tells us even more importantly that every area of our life can be influenced and dominated by the favor of God and the goodness of God and his his mercy and his blessing and his power and so forth. All of the blessings and all of the goodness of God can permeate and saturate our life to such a degree that there is no area left out. That's what it's saying about much more. 
much more the unlimited ability of God is available in every aspect, in every area that spiritual death used to dominate man. That's why Jesus' work is greater than Adam's. Therefore, verse 18, as by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, Jesus, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. Remember, justification is the declaration of righteousness. The declaration of righteousness. Folks, if there is one thing that you need to focus on, it is the fact that you are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You need to look at yourself in the mirror every day for the next month. And every morning, no matter how you feel, no matter how ugly you were the day before or whatever else the case might be, you need to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the in Christ Jesus means because of what he did, not because of what you do. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I have been declared righteous. If I mess up 50 times later on today, I'm still the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Because I'm not righteous because I keep it up. I'm not righteous because I do good. I'm not righteous because I do the right thing after I've made Jesus the Lord of my life. I'm righteous because Jesus died for me to be declared righteous. And that has been done and never, ever, ever can change. You cannot change the declaration of righteousness that God has made over you. You can't change it. And even if you are weak as a believer, even if you are uh, unknowledgeable of the word, even if you willingly mess up, you have still been declared righteous by the one work of Jesus on the cross. You want to know how to learn to, how to, to learn? Do you want to learn how to overcome your flesh? It's a very simple thing. In the midst of your flesh seeming to dominate you, declare your righteousness because of Jesus. If you sin, ask God to forgive you, and then declare, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The devil will be right there. He'll say, well, you, how could you possibly say that? You know what you just did. That's when you answer, what I just did has nothing to do with the fact that I've been declared righteous because of what Jesus did for me. The more you declare yourself righteous in the face of wrongdoing, the more and more and more the power of your flesh will diminish. See people that are dominated by their flesh in any area, drugs, addictions, or whatever, that tells you one thing in every case, and that is they don't know that they've already been declared righteous. Because anything you're under the power of is an area of the righteousness of God that you have not applied. Paul said, I won't be held under the power of anything. He said, all things are lawful but not expedient. But I won't do anything that's not appropriate because I don't want to be under anything else's power. Sounds like it's his choice. Just like it's yours. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, Jesus, shall many be made righteous. How? By accepting his work through faith. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You know why the law came around? 
The law did not come around to pronounce man guilty. The law did not, man was already pronounced guilty through Adam's sin. The law came around for man to see that they would have messed up just like Adam did if they had the choice or chance. God gave the law to mankind to cause him to realize what a depraved state he was in, how powerless he was over the law of sin and death that was ruling and reigning. That's all. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin, now here he's talking about personal sins, the transgression of the law of God, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In other words, the area that you see in your life where the, the area of greatest weakness is an area where the grace, the favor, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the power of God can abound more than that weakness to make you strong. But we don't apply it. Most people don't anyway. We see an area of weakness, so we run away from that area. That's not what we should do. We should recognize this is an area of weakness, so I need to apply the, the, the goodness of God, the righteousness, the fact that I've been declared righteous by the blood of Jesus. I need to apply all the power of God to this area to overcome. So many Christians are walking through life limping on every, uh, at, at every turn. There's a weakness in this area, so they run away to somewhere else. And there's a weakness over there, and so they run another direction. There's a weakness. They find something else. And then they're hindered from doing and, and walking and operating in the way that God wants them to operate. Take your weaknesses head on. Because where you think you're the weakest, where you feel the weakest, where your flesh seems to be the strongest against you to keep you from operating in the things and the will of God, that's where the grace of God, the favor of God, the power of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, and so forth, that's where the power of God will operate the most greatly. We do that, then we become all-around strong Christians. And what's it about? It's about the one thing that Jesus did that declared us righteous. Finally, verse 21, that sin, that, that as sin has reigned unto death. How did it do that? Through Adam's sin. Adam's sin caused you to be pronounced guilty, declared guilty before God. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign. Again, grace means the delivering power of God. It means the favor of God. It means the goodness of God. It means everything that Jesus accomplished for us. Even so might grace reign through righteousness. Notice that's the foundation. The declaration of righteousness. The understanding that you have been declared righteous. And that will never change. That can never change. You don't lose that. That declaration never wavers. God declared it. When God says something, it stays said. When God declares something, that's the way that it is from now on. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, folks, up until this point, he's really not talked about anything about who you are in Christ. He's talked about what you've been declared He's talking about something that is an absolute fact, an eternal fact, an eternal reality, and that was you were declared righteous by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus, the shedding of Jesus' blood. He's not talking about what you do yet. 
Now, he will. He'll talk about the grace of God and the power of God on the inside of us in chapter 6, 7, and 8. But up until this point, he's just talking about the fact, the simple fact, and it is a fact. It's not a theory. It's not an idea. It's not right. It's not true if you accept it or not. It's true because it's true. The fact is, you as a believer have been declared righteous. Whether you ever live up to it or not, you have been declared righteous. Whether you ever accept it or not, it's true. You have been declared righteous. That brings to mind in in Hebrews chapter 4 where it says, Come boldly, therefore, before the throne of grace. Why? Because you've been declared righteous. You don't have to slink in the back door. You don't have to try to get God on a good day. You've been declared righteous. You've been declared righteous just as Jesus was declared righteous at his resurrection. Do you realize Jesus did not earn his righteousness? I'm not talking about the righteousness here on the earth. Jesus did not earn the righteousness that caused him to be born again in the pit of hell. He didn't earn it. He paid the price and God said, that's it. I now declare him righteous. Your righteousness is just as real, just as established, just as true as Jesus's is for himself. I wonder if Jesus sits at the right hand of God in heaven and says, now, Father, am I, am I really righteous? I'm just not feeling good today. It's just as stupid for you to question yours. It's just as ridiculous for you and I to question ours based on feelings or thoughts or whatever, circumstances or whatever it might be. You are just as righteous as Jesus. Because Jesus' righteousness is just the same as yours. Yours is his. And that was a declaration of righteousness because a price had been paid. The only difference is Jesus paid his own price and he paid ours too. That as sin has reigned unto death, notice the transfer. Notice the substitution. Just as real as death reigned over mankind, reigned over you, hindered you, stopped you from the things of God. My grace reigned through righteousness. And that by Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege to be a believer. We thank you, Lord, that we have been declared righteous. Therefore, we say with our mouths, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Not because of how we feel, not because of how we look, but because of what Jesus has accomplished. And that will never change, Father. We recognize that we are righteous for eternity. We'll never be any more righteous than we are now. Because our righteousness is dependent and secured by the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for making it real on the inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.